ah, well, that's that's the thing. We make foreign policy interesting, right? We uh, so so here's here's the plan, Stephen. Okay. Uh, liberal hegemony. Wow. Right. Mm. So uh, you, you know, like dogma, Catholicism. Wow. Ooh. We just make it, yes, make it cool yes. and interesting and sexy. And and I have no idea how to do that. <laughs> <laughs> So the first um, step is we take Dennis Rodman and... <laughs> there it is. Yep, there it is. This is the Orientalist Express podcast, episode 24. I'm Nicholas Hayen, the founder of the Orientalist Express blog and website. Our show brings together young professionals from all around the world to discuss topics related to the Middle East, American foreign policy, and international relations. Our goal is to make American foreign policy exciting, interesting, and easy to understand for the everyday person. Today we are joined in the virtual studio by esteemed contributor Stephen Howard. Good morning, everyone. Be sure to check out our website at orientalistexpress.com to read more about the team. For several years now, this blog and podcast project has worked to help everyday people understand the complex and often confusing details behind international events and American foreign policy trends. We have tried to make these topics relevant and interesting to people's lives, because we believe that people can make better decisions only when they are informed about the world around them. But underpinning all of this is the reality that there is a large disconnect between American citizens and the foreign policies which are pursued on their behalf. The actions, or inactions, that the American government takes every single day have profound impacts on people all over the world. Yet most citizens know little, or care little, about this critically important role in the world. So, what can we do about this knowledge gap? Why does, why does it exist, and can it be closed? What are your thoughts, Stephen? Well, I wanted to give a little background as well on kind of where I was thinking about from this. So I was uh, off with a couple friends a couple nights ago, and we're all sitting around a table, and they're very intelligent friends. I I would put them up against anyone in terms of if you want to call it IQ, if you want to, whatever. Very intelligent people. And we're having political discussions, as you do, and we get to the realm of foreign well, policy. As, as you do, I as, say. Yeah, you're, you're not wrong. <laughs> <laughs> um. But we get to the realm of foreign policy, and as soon as we hit the realm of foreign policy, these really weird ideas start coming out of these very intelligent people, people who are very attuned to American politics, and they're saying things that are obviously kind of discredited at this point. I would say discredited. The United States is only in the Middle East for oil, and that is it. There is no other reason why the U.S. is in the Middle East. The... Uh, Things that I don't believe in and that even as you try to explain to them, they will not believe in. And I was kind of struck as to how you could have this split between someone who knows so much, a couple people who know so much about politics, who know so much about the world in general, and still have a disconnect with foreign policy. It's striking to me because... Like I said, they are very up-to-date on all U.S. politics. They know probably more than me about U.S. politics. If you're not able to keep up on foreign politics while keeping up on domestic politics, is it almost too hard a task? And I don't know. It's uh, That's why I was thinking about this. And 
where do you actually, or how do you actually get that message out? Obviously, we do this podcast. There are a lot of other podcasts out there. I know that uh, was it International Security just released their own podcast. That's an MIT-sponsored uh, podcast. That is free. There are a whole bunch of other things out there that are free. There are a lot of things that you do have to pay for as well. And I, I wonder if that might be part of the problem. The amount of paywalled articles out there, academic articles out there today. You talk about foreign affairs. You talk about foreign policy. And these are magazines, by the way. Uh, you talk about international security. You talk about any of these uh, number of international relations or foreign policy related journals, articles, magazines, what have you. And you can't really read through them all. One, because there's just a lot out there. And uh, I'll get to that a little bit later, I think. But the second portion, the portion that I really am uh, afraid of is just that so much is so much is paywalled off. And... I, I don't understand how the average citizen is supposed to be able to be up-to-date and nuanced up-to-date on so many of these issues if you only can read five articles a month, max. Yeah, I guess I would um, kind of question you further to the extent that were they able to, you know, because they believe that uh, the United States is only in the Middle East for oil, to what extent were they able to sort of articulate a position besides just oh, it's only for oil and, you know, everything's about oil the end. You know, yeah. was there was there a good uh, debate and discussion about that? Were they able to to reason with that and, you know, sort of to counter your counter arguments? Or was yeah, it always just, mean, nope, but... it's just oil. So I'm wondering, uh, to what extent was your conversation like that? And this is the problem with any person who considers themselves an expert or knowledgeable in any field. And this is proven by science. The more you know about something, the harder it is to change your mind because you can come up with all these rebuttals in your head and whatnot. And that was kind of what ended up happening was, like I said, they are incredibly knowledgeable. They are incredibly smart. And so I'm able to kind of list off things like, well, why are we then supporting Jordan? Why are we supporting Israel? Why are we supporting Egypt? None of which have oil. Why are we doing X? Why are we doing Y? And... It kind of, at that point, people kind of tend to shut down. Um, I try to, myself, I try to have an open conversation. I am very, <laughs> I'm not going to say I do the Socratic method, because I think Socrates was kind of a jerk. If you've ever read his <laughs> books, or not his books, Plato's books about Socrates, I would never want to get in a discussion with a guy, because he just, he's a jerk. Um, <laughs> but I, I do kind of take his method in terms of you just kind of question where they're coming from. And if someone doesn't feel uh, confident enough in their opinion, but they still feel, feel very confident in their overall intelligence as these people had a right to be, I don't want to take that away from them. They a hundred percent have a right to be confident in their intelligence. And like I said, they're more intelligent than me in a lot of different ways, but it shuts down. You shut down. You don't want to be proven wrong. I guess I do want to say this. Those type of people, though, are really our target audience. The people who are really intelligent have the potential to really understand everything that's happening around them, but just maybe don't have enough context or enough information to really understand it. They know the uh, facade of the issue, but they don't know how it works inside. They don't know the black box workings. And this is what we're trying to help with. But uh, you get to the other point, like I said, 
the more you know, the less you're willing to know. And how do you change that? How do you get inside? And so to answer your question, Nick, as the conversation went on, at first they were uh, they were very much they they very much uh, were dismissive of my point of view. I'm a pr- pretty combative talker, and I think anyone can, no. that hears me right. <laughs> no, never. <laughs> no, anyone that's heard me talk, anyone that's heard me debate, I'm a pretty combative talker, and I will defend my point of view, and I will unabashedly defend my point of view. I don't ever mean it to be mean or wrong or bad or whatnot, but that's just who I am. So I was able to defend my point of view fairly well, but it just got to the point where uh, the conversation just kind of shut down. And uh, I, I don't want to say facts didn't matter, but I am I am able to spurt out some facts about the Middle East. I, I study the region, but to someone who doesn't know very much about the Middle East besides the United States is engaged in there and they don't want them to be engaged in there, Facts don't matter. I could be making those up off the top of my head. So we're at an impasse. What? How do you move forward from that point? How do you convince them that you know what you're talking about? And for anyone that know, for anyone that's aware, I don't have like a PhD or anything. I am the only way I can convince you that I know what I'm talking about is the accuracy of the things that I say. And that means I could be completely wrong. That means I could be I could be right. But it's something that has to be verified by you. Well, and you have you to your credit, you have done a lot of independent study as well. So it's not not just to say that you know you're just some guy off the street or that you know I'm some master's student who knows everything and that automatically grants me that knowledge. It it doesn't. It's the fact that you continue your independent study just like I do, and we independently investigate and use critical thinking skills to try to get to the conclusions that we draw oh sure certainly but it you can't deny that having a phd having a uh, whatever the suffix you want on the end of your name is going to increase your validity in the eyes of other people if you have a phd in islamic studies you're probably going to be taken fairly seriously if you talk about islam if you are someone who just recently converted to islam on the other hand you still might be taken seriously when you're talking about it with people, but maybe you're not taken as seriously. Maybe they don't believe that you really know what you know because you don't really have the the title to go with it. Well, that that would be nice, but unfortunately we found that more and more it's this anti-intellectualism that is pervasive <laughs> yeah. throughout the country where you know, if you have a, a master's or a PhD or you've even gone to college, suddenly rather than validating your knowledge, it invalidates it because they just want to believe that that you're now somehow fully biased and just spouting a bunch of liberal talking points, when in reality, all we're doing is using the critical thinking skills and the knowledge that we have gained. And sometimes it leads us to this conclusion over here, but other times it leads people to different conclusions that aren't necessarily, you know, liberal talking points. And so that, I think, is one of the biggest problems that we have is... We, we can sit here and say, yeah, we we have this degree and that degree and we have all these credentials. But to so many people now, the credentials mean nothing. And in fact, they they invalidate what we say rather than validate it. It's maddening. Yeah. And it's that kind of I mean, in to circle around then to the uh, what we were talking about, if everyone is going to shut down 
when you start trying to talk to them, whether you have a PhD, whether you are just Joe Schmo off the street who knows what they're talking about, if anyone shuts down when you start talking to them about, uh, it's not even just limited to foreign policy, but about something where you know a fair amount about and they disagree with you, how are you supposed to not only convince them to change their mind, but maybe convince them to listen to you? How are you supposed to just get that conversation working? Because nobody wants to be proven wrong. Nobody wants to be told that they're incorrect in their views, regardless of, like, <laughs> I always say, I know zero about healthcare. Absolutely nothing about healthcare. But if you were to come up to me and tell me that everything I knew about healthcare was wrong and how could I have thought that, I would totally just go, whoa, 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 you calm down. I know a fair amount about healthcare. It's just, nah. And I don't. But that's just the natural reaction. Well, yeah, part of it's how we frame that discussion. And I try to be cognizant of that as well whenever I'm having foreign policy discussions with, with other people, people who may not necessarily follow it as closely as I do, to try to come at it at the um, the angle of that they have read something or they've at least looked at something and have thought about it at least a little bit. Um, and then use that to say, okay, how did you reach your conclusions and how did I reach mine? And you know, is there a way that we can find that sort of common ground and I can convince you that what I'm saying is probably more factually accurate than what you're saying? Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. But through that discussion and being able and willing to admit when I'm wrong is um, the only real way to actually reach a consensus. And like you said, unfortunately, and you know, we're all guilty of it. I'm guilty of it sometimes too. Uh, it's really hard to admit when you're wrong. Yeah, definitely. And that, and so that's what I really came to. And I don't want to say I came to the conclusion because it's still obviously everything's ongoing. But one of the things that I just started thinking about too was that we need to accept that we are never going to win the debate. That's not how you. It, it's not even. It, it, you're not going to convince the person even at the same at that one time. It's you should never think that that is going to be the one time. It's going to be a series of conversations, and really, where the transformation in what they think about how they think about things is going to be, is when they're by when they're by themselves, and they're think they're sitting there by themselves and they're thinking, huh, you know, maybe he had some good points on there. I, I don't really know about that. Maybe I'll look that up, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And the subtle changes and the small changes in between the conversations are really where change can happen. And that's... Yeah. No, exactly. And, you know, that's that's the problem with, like, you know, Facebook arguments and stuff, right? Oh, yes. We all just assume that, like, you're going to say one thing and and then, boom, mic drop. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. Look at what they said. I am fully convinced and turn 180 degrees to your position that literally never happens yeah it happens on tv shows i've seen it on west wing so many times (laughs) well there's a lot of things i used to believe about the world based on west wing and most of those aren't true anymore oh yeah it's it, it and so that brings me to kind of a where do we fit into that role where does the foreign policy community fit into that role because there's no way nick you and i can go out and talk to every american out there um i'll try oh my gosh i there's a meme out there about like me with a subject that i'm interested in pouring coffee into another cup that's just you 
and just I will overwhelm you with a subject I am interested in, and I will not stop talking about it. But I can't do that to everyone on Earth. That's or everyone even in the United States. It's impossible. It's too small of a too small of a thing for individual conversations to really get that through. Individual conversations are important, but they will not change the United States in general. So can things like podcasts really uh, can things like podcasts, like articles, can they be a substitute for individual conversations? I think they can help. They can certainly reach a lot more people than one one-on-one individual conversations. Um, but I think I think it's systemic. It's cultural. You know, it's we need to have not just an education about like the role of the United States in the world and why it's still important even to this day, but we need to also culturally come to that idea that. One, like it's okay to be wrong and it's okay to have a debate where you don't necessarily change that other person's opinion immediately. And as a society, we ought to value these critical thinking skills even more. Because even during this entire discussion, I'm sitting here thinking, in what ways am I wrong? Like, because I don't want to come across as arrogant and go like, listen here, podcast listeners, I know everything because I'm <laughs> super smart. Like, I know that that's not the case. And so I still want to be aware of that even throughout this whole discussion. So I think so much of it is trying to remind people of why all of this information is important and why you should care about it. And culturally coming to that understanding of we have to change the discourse because right now it is just so uncivil. It is just, I am 100% right and you suck. And I'm going to change your opinion overnight, and then you will be on my side. And I think a lot of it, I, I hate to, I hate to blame cop, pop culture. That's just because it's such an easy cop out to do. But a lot of it does have to do somewhat with pop culture, with the um, the newsroom, with uh, West Wing, with Madam Secretary, with shows that I really, really like, and <laughs> shows that are very glib about how arguments are solved, how things are rectified, and if you take the moral position or the moral high ground and you know what you're talking about, you will always be right. And that's just not how it works. And we've convinced ourselves that that is going to be how it works, like what you say. And I think that that has to... um, Those type of shows, the type of shows that people like us will watch, they have a role in that they have a you want you want to be the toby ziegler you want to walk in and just mic drop on someone and just go (laughs) yeah that's what it is and they're just left staring with their jaw open and everyone's like "Ooh, no (laughs) oh my god he was right right and everyone wants to be that because it looks so cool on those tv shows and that's what we unfortunately that's what we kind of aspire to so Mm -hmm. I think some of it does have to do with pop culture. With it's, If you want to say West Wing is pop culture, right? But it has to do with some of that stuff. And well, it's it's pop culture for people like you and me. Who, yes, it is. <laughs> who watch those shows and care about it and, and admittedly aspired to that sort of thing. I mean, the yeah. West Wing inspired me in so many ways because I looked at it and went, oh, man, people who are genuinely acting morally and trying their hardest to do good in the world, they really can succeed just on morals alone mm-hmm. and good arguments. And that's not true. Yeah. I mean, it helps, but and it's, but it's just not true. Like I think about, uh, we just watched a 
for all the listeners out there, I have been catching up on Madam Secretary because I didn't learn about it until earlier this year. And while I recommend it, it is, like I say, very glib about some things. And like in the last episode, it was uh, they're dealing with a mock uh, Duarte, who is the president of the Philippines. And the way they get through the argument was basically a mic drop on the president. And like, you're going to do this because mic drop, we know this about you. And like, I'm sitting there and uh, my fiance is like, oh, I'm glad they got him in that sort of way. But it didn't end completely well, but I'm glad they've got him. And I'm sitting there going, that would literally never happen. That is <laughs> that is such a stretch of the truth and that it trivializes states people's jobs so much because there is not one con- – even in, in the world – there's not one conversation that's going to turn a world leader. You're not going to have a piece of information and drop it on them. I mean, Duarte could literally go out and embezzle billions of dollars from China and he would still be reelected because he has a cult of personality. You're not going to just mic drop on him. Oh, and he's literally to... pushed people out of helicopters, yes, didn't he, he? So it's, yeah. But so that's it, the thing, right? Is yeah. we're all looking for that gotcha moment. And. We think it's going to happen in politics, even in our own politics, every day, and it doesn't. I mean, just look at the current presidency. Every single day is a major gotcha moment that probably would have derailed any other presidency, and it doesn't do anything. So it doesn't matter. The sort of gotcha politics just doesn't doesn't happen anymore, even yeah. if, if it ever really did. Well, and so and here's, I guess, the general point where I get to on that is, does that gotcha politics that is so emblematic of the world today does that flow up from the people because that's what they want to see or does that flow down from the politicians because that's what they want to do and if it flows up from the people we're in a we're in a pretty pickle because we're in a democracy if the people want to see something happen all they have to do is will it enough and you know what eventually it will happen it's that's i know a lot of people don't believe democracy works like that but i do still believe it works like that and especially on these cultural norms where the gotcha politics, if the if the United States population wants to see gotcha politics, if it wants to see AOC slam somebody for this or Matt Gates crush somebody for that, it, that's exactly Annihilates what it's going to Annihilates the liberals. Oh, like, man. Yeah, it's... Yeah. No, but we all want to see that, don't we? Like, we, we think that's that that's problem. what we want, but it never works. It works... For us individually on our own, uh, our, own, our own topics, but it doesn't work for the quote-unquote other side because they just look at that and go, "Yeah, no, he didn't." Yeah, or they, they and just they shut move down. On. I mean, yeah, <laughs> and that's and and we do the same for their gotcha politics. Mm-hmm. So it it's the irony of we want this sort of one moment that's going to just fundamentally change everything, and it just doesn't happen. So do you think that flows up from the people then? I think to a large extent it does. How do you, and that's in a gotcha culture, how do you educate someone then? Cause that's all they want to do is mic drop. So how are you, how can you have, how can you have a conversation about a nuanced topic as foreign policy and a boring conversation? Cause a lot of foreign policy can be boring. I like yeah. it because I'm a giant nerd, but <laughs> I, there's a lot of people out there that legitimately don't like it. And they have a legitimate reason too, because it's boring. And how do you, get them to interact with that. That's the goal of what I'm trying to do is to make this relevant, to try to tie it in some way to to what's happening in your everyday world. Or to alternatively say, it may not impact your day-to-day, but 
there are long-term trends here that that definitely will impact things. You probably won't ever see it because most of it's indirect and imperceptible, but it does have an impact. Yeah, I can kind of, I can see it. I'm just, my big worry, and I'm always, I'm kind of a pessimist. My big worry is that no matter how, how, how flashy we try to make foreign policy, the relative flashiness compared to everything else will be just absolutely foreign policy will be dull no matter what just because of the relative flashiness of everything else in the world Mm. and therefore everything else commands a place so you have people who base their entire foreign policy views off of a um i don't know a, a, a uh a domestic feeling a domestic opinion and that's not always necessarily wrong but it can lead to very wrong opinions when a foreign policy opinion is being pushed by a single party for domestic gain and no international game. It's very for it's for right here and right now. And that flashiness from that will always override, you know, actual foreign policy. Yeah, I wonder I wonder if uh, you're alluding to sort of the impeachment scandal, right? That, um, you know, that we're that we're looking at making you know, essentially making Ukraine a pawn in American domestic politics, that has dramatic implications for Ukraine, but it has very indirect implications for the United States personally, at least in regards to like foreign policy. I mean, you know, people are looking at it and thinking, and, and we've seen other instances of, of withholding funds for military assistance and things like that. And people say, oh, well, you know, what's what's the point? We need to use that money domestically. So yeah, we should just pull out all of our funding for all these other countries. Uh, but we don't think about or don't care about the the implications that that does have long term. So yeah, tomorrow, nothing's probably going to change. But in 5, 10, 15 years, those nations are going to be essentially superseded by other powers. And actually, we're seeing that even on a much faster scale, say within, um, well, within Syria. So the troop withdrawal from Syria Overnight, we lost a very critical ally, and within a week, they had aligned themselves with with Syria and with Russia. And so, I mean, we do see both short-term and long-term implications there. Um, but unfortunately, so many people still look at that and go, well, you know, we wanted to get out of the region anyway, so who cares? Part of it is, you know, people forget why certain policies were important in the first place. You know, like, think back to, like, the Soviet Union, the Red Scare, you know, it was easy for everyone to say like, oh, well, Russia's a pretty bad actor. We need to push back against them. But we haven't had that sort of red scare in a very long time. You know, we, we defeated the Soviets, right? So Russia's done. That's that we won. End of story. But that isn't the end of the story. And so people aren't as concerned about, you know, Russian influence in Ukraine or these faraway places because they think, oh, well, it doesn't matter anymore. We won or who cares? It's a, it's a long way away. We don't think about that so many of the things that were true decades ago are still true today, but just so much time has passed now, people can't remember why it was important in the first place. Yeah, and I, I do agree with that. And it's and that's why I get back to kind of the difficulty of pushing a nuance in foreign policy and the difficulty of convincing someone, say, that even though you really didn't like President Bush, we didn't invade Iraq for oil. We invaded Iraq for different reasons. They might have been completely wrong reasons, but different reasons. Um, well, yeah, because we don't have their oil. Iraq right? has its oil. The Kurds have their share of the oil, too. 
we don't personally own that. No. And so it's hard to say that it was just for oil. But that's obviously the for a lot of people that is the uh, go-to argument. And it's the same for um, United States committing human rights abuses in or uh, not human rights war crimes in some of their what they did. And I think there were war crimes committed. You can't deny Abu Ghraib wasn't a war crime. There's no denial there. But to a certain extent, you're trying to roll all these war crimes up. And you say, well, President Bush, he's a war criminal. He shouldn't even be blah, blah, blah. And it, well, do you know what a war criminal is? He's not Milosevic, uh, just, you know, committing genocide out there. It, it was a poor decision. It was a bad decision to invade Iraq. It really was. But that doesn't make someone a war criminal. And that's we're getting a lot of things caught up with domestic politics overriding the foreign policy of the idea. And when you try to, like we said, when you try to explain, people shut down. And that's, then I get back to the idea about, well, there are other articles out there. There are podcasts out there. There are people out there who are willing to talk informatively about these subjects why are they not being used because i bet you if you polled the united states today and said why did we invade the united states the leading answer even if it may not get like a plurality the leading answer would be oil so why oh, for, is that for iraq for iraq yes okay yeah you said why did the united states invade the united states oh did i really yeah <laughs> well we did that too but that was different <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. yeah no people people would say oil and and I'd have to push back on that and just say, like, I mean, just and of course, I'm coming at this as a historian who, you know, reads dusty old books and primary sources. Nerd. But so much of what they were saying was, you know, liberation and democracy and it would spread through all out the world and everything like that, which, as we've known, was just as arrogant and ridiculous as taking it just for the oil. But let's at least get our facts straight on that. Yeah. I think a little bit of it, too, is is hampered by the fact that with the Syria withdrawal, the president is even now basically said, oh, well, we're just going to protect the oil fields. So that does, unfortunately, dramatically undercut arguments that we're not in the Middle East only for oil. But I, I would say that could be an outlier, given that, you know, everything that the president does recently is such a departure from previous foreign policy. Certainly. And I, I would add to that that we are certainly in the Middle East for oil as well as a whole load of other concerns to say that oil doesn't play a part in there that's wrong oil does definitely play a part as to why we are there it is a critical need for our infrastructure for modern economy so that's well, definitely for china going to play. china and india's infrastructure not so much for ours anymore well i don't know we decided that we're not going to invest in uh, clean renewable energy or anything to that extent so i mean we're still running on oil right now but yeah but we don't need saudi oil for our purposes as much they said well we get all of our oil from the middle east that's that's very wrong because we are a net exporter of oil we i mean i'm sure there are some oil that comes from the middle east just because of how trade works but we're a net exporter now so i think a lot of the problem here is is branding right like it's it's easier to just to believe a quick conspiracy theory that's simple as saying we're only in it for the oil. It's so much harder 
to actually, like you say, have that nuanced conversation of, well, you know, oil is a part of it, but there's also, you know, X, Y, and Z factors. Part of it is is just that sort of branding, right? Like, Mm -hmm. you know, to go back to my Red Scare example, that was easy to understand, right? Yeah. Russia is bad, or I should say the Soviets are bad, and they are coming to just implement communism everywhere. That's real short, simple, easy to understand. People get it. And it was... We found out it wasn't actually accurate, but the people up at the highest levels of government believed it at the time. So it was easy to to market to everyone else. But foreign policy, especially American foreign policy, just doesn't have that right now, at least not traditional American foreign policy. It's really easy to say America first, but it's so much harder to say, you know, liberal hegemony first. Mm-hmm. That gets back to my point. There are so many resources out there to educate yourself right now. And I think there is, I I would be willing to say there are more resources than any time in history to educate yourself on what is going on in the world. And so the question that comes down to is why, why are we not educating ourselves on these topics? And my, my view is that it comes down to two different things. It comes down to, there's a lot of information accessible, but it's also Mm -hmm. inaccessible due to things like paywalls. Uh, People want to be paid for their work and that makes sense, but if you are, I have the feeling that if you're writing for a foreign policy, foreign affairs, something that directly affects the domestic people, you should have an obligation to an extent to make that public, at least at some point. And then you also have just the time deficit that normal humans have. So you have the problem where I have, I, I was talking to Nick about this. I'm now trying NaNoWriMo this month. I am going to try to write a 50,000-page novel. It won't go well, but it also <laughs> is going to take up a lot, a lot, a lot of time. So what am I going to do with the time that I'm taking up? I'm not going to be looking at foreign policy as much. I'm not going to be looking at domestic politics, economics, et cetera, et cetera. And it's, a, it's just a trade-off. And I'm not, NaNoWriMo is not existentially important to the United States, but it's something I want to do. And... There's a lot of other people out there that people with children, people with extracurricular sports, people with uh, on and on and on and on, and they just don't have the time to follow foreign policy. It isn't so much of the problem, though, kind of, as you said, information. We have access to more information than at any point in human history, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's the correct information, like it's factually correct. I, I remember seeing uh, a tweet by someone, I don't know, a couple of weeks ago that basically just said, remember back in the day when we thought that uh, just general ignorance about a subject was due to a lack of information, and that just said dot, dot, dot. Well, that turned out to be wrong. Like, <laughs> because we have all this information, but so much of it is factually incorrect. I mean, misinformation is a huge problem now. And so how do people even sift through and find out what is factually correct and what is just a bunch of spin designed to get you to think a certain way um, just for somebody else's profits. Sure. And maybe not even just spin, but um, just the fat that you're trying to get yep. through too, when you're trying to get to the meat, because I've been seeing this in foreign affairs uh, for a while now. Um, and for foreign policy, when I did subscribe to foreign policy a long time ago, they had it as well. Like I remember foreign policy at one point had an article, which was pictures of cats that look like Putin. 
I will always remember that. <laughs> and it was just picture of Cat Putin, picture of Cat Putin, picture of Cat Putin. I'm like, oh, this is really funny. And now I look at it and I go, you know, someone spent a fair amount of time working on that. And then someone went on to foreign policy, me. And instead of reading an article about foreign policy, looked at pictures of cats looking like Putin. So how do you get through that fat as well when there's so much more fat being drummed up? Things that even though, and I, that might be a too wide of an example, but there are things I printed in foreign affairs that are interesting. They really are, but they don't deserve a prestigious spot in one of the, in the foreign policy, foreign affairs article, or a, I don't, it's not a journal, it's a magazine, but it is the preeminent, you know, foreign policy go-to thing and though you don't deserve a spot in there if you don't if your article is not game-changing enough ah but doesn't that doesn't that help gain interest at least i mean you saw that and went to foreign policy and someone who sees that who isn't as interested might think okay that's kind of funny maybe i'll actually check out what they have to say about other topics i would disagree with that i would say that it is so and I, at that time, I was subscribing to foreign policy anyways. So I was checking foreign policy almost daily, and I was that's where I found it. But it's the uh, if you're going to read something in an episode or an episode, I keep calling it an episode in a uh, edition of foreign affairs, in a edition of foreign policy, and you read a twenty-page article about why expertise is going away in the United States. It's not what you came there for. You might have learned something, but you didn't learn something about foreign affairs, foreign policy, and it's almost tricking you. If you read an article of foreign affairs, you should be reading about foreign policy, about foreign affairs, about the changing world around you and how it can be affected. You shouldn't be reading a plug for a book. Even if it's interesting, even if it gets you reading that one article, after you read that one article, you're not going to go, that was fantastic. I'm going to read the rest of the book now. No, you read your foreign affairs you read your foreign policy you feel good about yourself look at you you did some work and it's did you really did you learn anything and the answer is unfortunately no because it's all fat that you're eating it tastes delicious delicious but you're not getting any protein i wonder uh to what extent to um you know in talking about misinformation we have to also remember that the people genuinely believe many of the things that they're writing. I mean, I'm, I'm mm-hmm. struck by, because um, you let me borrow uh, Stephen Walt's book, <laughs> uh, The Hell of Good Intentions, which is actually pretty great so far, I got to say. Um, basically, for all the listeners out there, it's about the liberal hegemony system, you know, the American-dominated system in the United States and how most people had the best intentions of trying to get the system to work and genuinely like wanted freedom and democracy throughout the world. But it just kind of didn't pan out that way. And um, one of the one of the topics he he mentions is that we have this this idea of threat inflation when we're trying to defend that liberal democratic order, where mm-hmm. we're saying like, look, if if we don't defend this, you know, all of these other countries are gonna come crumbling down, and X Y Z horrible domino thing is theory. gonna happen. Yeah, yeah, essentially domino theory. Yeah, and we can't deny the fact that um, whether or not this is factually true. People believe it. They genuinely believe it. I genuinely believed it, and in some instances still do. Um, so whether or not that's 
misinformation, yep. you know, we have a, a, a definite disagreement of, of fundamental base theories. And that's part of the problem, too, of cutting through that and, and trying to figure out what's accurate, what's based in fact, and, and what is just really misguided ideas. And I think that's, I think you're very, very right there, too. And I think that is the, uh, that is why things like foreign affairs, foreign policy, and New York Times, whatever it happened it might be, can be so important because they are supposed to go over those articles before they let them into their thing. They're not supposed to, you can't just write an opinion piece and put it, or you're not supposed to be able to write just an opinion piece and put it into foreign affairs. You do have to have some backup. You do have to have some credibility and it is fact checked for you. So you know that what you're reading, even though it, like I say, it might be fat, at least it is verifiable fat. It's not spam. I think that a lot of uh, things out there, I, I agree with you, and Breitbart, I very much believe that the people, there are some people at Breitbart who honestly believe what they're reporting, who honestly believe what they're saying about foreign policy. That doesn't make it true. And that doesn't make it even opinion that it might be true. It, a lot of it is verifiably false. But they do believe it. And if you try to shut them down by saying it's incorrect, I'm not going to publish it because it's not academically rigorous enough. It's not verifiable enough. Oh, well, you're just trying to shut down my rights to talk. And it's, it's not that. And it gets down to the idea that you need to know when you don't know. And a lot of those people writing those articles have firm, firm beliefs that are honest beliefs rooted in ignorance and it's hard to hard 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 to uh try to debase that well yeah because you know it's it's basically i forget what the um the actual technical name for it is but the that problem where the the less you know about something the more you think you know about Dunning kruger that's it yep that's and i don't have any good answers for that (laughs) Yeah, it is absolutely terrifying. Uh, it's, And I, I think that that's actually one of the... Something that I have been terrified about. I, I learned about Dunning-Kruger syndrome, which so for everyone that knows, Dunning-Kruger syndrome is exactly what Nick said. It is the study that said people who have incredibly low amounts of knowledge about something tend to be very confident about their knowledge in it. So, like me in healthcare, I know almost nothing about healthcare. So I am more apt to be very confident in my opinion about healthcare. I'm not, but that's because of willful thinking about it. Well, but I mean, you know, in circling back to to what can be done about it, you know, I do think that there are some some remedies because these are foundational, you know, psychological, like biological. Uh, flaws of human nature so it's not like it's something that we've never seen before or that has never occurred and is happening for the first time so we have sort of a marker of how we can can try to reverse that and combat these these trends and i do think that you know generating interest and education and critical thinking skills developing that those are some of the ways that you can lessen those effects they'll never go away completely but we can lessen them to a degree and sort of, you know, get people to to really think critically about things again. 
I agree with that. I don't know. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm being an optimist. No, I, I agree with that. I also believe that even if you are firm and confident in your opinion, uh, sorry, going back to the, I remembered where I was going with the Dunn and Kruger thing. Even if you're very confident in your opinion, question it. I mean, that is the big thing. When I learned about Dunn and Kruger, I questioned my opinion all the time because I was like, I'm very confident in a lot of my opinions. Maybe I'm an idiot. And it, it makes you really try harder because you have to start verifying stuff not to everyone else, but to yourself. And that's what you should be doing. You should be trying to verify it to yourself, not just in a way to make you feel good, but in a way to make it feel like you're accurate. Yeah, that's what I've been doing with, um, you know, my entire worldview on foreign policy. Yeah. Right. Is, you know, I used to be just the most staunch liberal internationalist you could possibly think of, because that's all I knew. You know, that's that's what I grew up with in in graduate school. And sure, I was introduced to other theories of foreign policy, but um, I mean, the mainstream was always liberal international order. You know, I went to mm-hmm. D.C. and all the policy organizations I helped with, they also promoted that worldview. And it's only now, and yes, it is thanks to you, Stephen, <laughs> and all of your books written by realists. My but evil, that evil is... intentions. <laughs> but that is helping me to, to challenge my worldview. And I'm trying to take that seriously and not just go like, Ah, well, you know, Walt and Mearsheimer, they're full of crap. Like, no, they they have legitimate points. And it's not that I'm ingesting and spitting back out every single thing that they're saying, but I do take what they're saying and then critically analyze it, evaluate it and think, is this accurate? Does this make sense? Or does something in my old worldview still make more sense? Definitely. And it's, I think we've all had that conversion i almost want to say with uh the liberal international because i was exactly where you where i was a hundred percent a supporter of the liberal international order and connections and whatnot and then i started thinking about it and then it started falling apart and i'm like maybe this wasn't a good idea maybe this wasn't super well balanced and it only happens if you're not only willing to question yourself but you're willing to question your axioms i believed mm-hmm. so much that the united states had to root the international order so much and it's taken me questioning that to really get to i would say see the world a little bit more accurately but he questioned that too and just keep questioning and I, I would i would encourage anyone that hears this to just keep questioning and questioning yourself not just questioning things around you but questioning yourself yeah, I'd say that's the bottom line. I guess never stop asking questions even to yourself. Right. So, in my second, I guess thing here to uh, to kind of help out the world understand foreign policy a little more is what I mentioned. My bugbear at the uh, beginning of this conversation: make academic articles more free, make foreign affairs, foreign policy, make these rigorously studied articles more open to the public. I, I know no one who publishes this stuff is ever going to listen to me, but you are creating this wealth of knowledge which can help out everyone and you feel really good about doing it, and then you release it to the people who can pay and who want to pay for it, and that's about, what, 3% of the United States, maybe 2% of the United States, and the rest of the 98% of the United States can't read it, don't have the ability to read it, 
and therefore are left in the dust and you're left sitting there going, why don't they understand my viewpoint? Well, because you don't let them. And I don't know if anyone's looked at a subscription to foreign affairs, but I think it's like $60 a year. Foreign policy, I think, is $30 a year. International security is $64 a year. Um, New York Times is very expensive as well. Wall Street Journal is incredibly expensive. And if you don't have these subscriptions to these sorts of things, you're not going to be able to read it. And you, all you're doing, all you're doing is walling out poor people. You're walling out the rest of the United States. And it's, I find it reprehensible. It's the ivory tower. Oh God, it's, yeah, ivory tower with a golden lock. And that's, that's how we break free of it is we try to, to get that information out to everyone, not just the people who can pay money for it. Mm-hmm. Completely agree. And that's why this podcast will never cost you money. Subscribe now for. <laughs> <laughs> and that's it for this episode of the Orientalist Express podcast. I'd like to thank our guest, Stephen, for his insight and analysis, as well as the listeners and readers of our blog. Remember to check out our website at orientalistexpress.com, like and share on our Facebook page, or tweet us at orientalistexp. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.